message this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with me. Uh, help me to, to share the gospel this morning. Help me to unpack your word and your truth. Uh, help me to, to um, just demonstrate the, the wonderful, amazing things that you have in your, in your scriptures to the folks who are here. Uh, for the folks who encounter you, uh, for the folks who are online, for the folks who are, uh, you know, maybe coming across the, the audio stream on, on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, I pray that they would hear your word, hear your uh, gospel, and that uh, it would be uh, like cold water to a dry, uh, uh, parched uh, lips. I pray for your, your hand on the lives of the folks who are here. I pray that they would uh, know you more, uh, that... that uh, stony spots in their hearts and strongholds and, and other things that have uh, created uh, created distance between them and you. And, and um, I pray that you would tear that stuff down, Lord. I pray that you would uh, um, help folks come to know Christ more intimately or, or help them to come know him at all in the first place. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, many years ago, uh, a friend of mine, who was uh, one of the best men at my wedding, uh, he and I have been friends on Facebook for a number of years, and he's got a crowd of children. Uh, and, and he posted something on Facebook I have not stopped. I mean, I haven't thought about it continuously, but every few years it pops up in my head. Uh, he, uh, on his Facebook page, he posted, um, you know, free to anyone, two puzzles in a bag. Everybody who's a parent has experienced this, right? Or the, uh, the, the more frequent... Part of a puzzle in a box, right, where you start working at it and you, you come to the very end and you become very aware that there are two or three pieces missing. And, and I don't think there's anything in life that is more frustrating or more irritating than that. Um, I, uh, my kids, or actually my son, Titus, and my wife are, are people who like doing puzzles. I uh, do not. Um, not only do I not, do not I, I, I struggle with being around people who are doing puzzles because I, I, by nature, want to distract them. Um, but, but it's interesting to watch small children do them, and this is kind of where I'm going with this. So you have this puzzle, like a big puzzle, a more complicated puzzle, will oftentimes have pieces that are different colors or shapes or what have you. And every once in a while, I'll notice where a child will pick up a piece and look at that piece and hold it for way longer than makes sense because they're pretty sure this one piece is going to go somewhere, right? And they spend all their time looking for that spot. And personally, I'll keep one piece back in my pocket so I get to put the last piece in. Um, but I would imagine like doing two bags in a pu- you know, two puzzles in one bag would be like that, where it would be forever trying to figure out what is this a picture of with this tiny little single frame glance. And, and it would be impossible, right? And, and as we dive into our text today, we're going to talk about sort of this perspective on God, the tiny, t- tiny little puzzle piece perspective, that little glimpse that we sometimes pick up and think, now I've got it. You all ever do that? This is all of who God is. I've got him nailed down in my single piece. And when you really start backing up, you begin to figure out that, that God is, is not a puzzle. Of course, he is a, a person, um, but he is a very complex person with different aspects and personality. And like, like he's eternal and he is all-knowing, he's all-powerful. And so there's never, ever an end to how we know him more. 
Um, and to give you an example of where I'm going with this, when I first became a Christian, it was like a million years ago, I, uh, I was living in Montgomery, Alabama. I was in ninth grade, I think. I don't know. It was right about the time the Persian Gulf War started. So those of y'all who are old enough can do the math there. Uh, the first one, not the recent one. Um, and, and I started going to church because people were nice to me there. Right, like I went, went with a neighbor to a church picnic, and people were really friendly. And I thought, man, I like this. I'm going. And I, I grew up a military kid, and we moved around. And I, I know that most of y'all are small town folks, and so you've grown up in the same school. But the truth is, if you're the kid who moves into a new school, like everybody who's known each other their entire lives, they're not your friends, right? You're not going to fit in. And you add into that, like I know I'm cool now. But back then, what? Temperature-wise. Room temperature is the state I am assuming. I, <laughs> um, but back then, I was really awkward, and I, I had trouble interacting with people. And for me, the church was a place where people were nice to me. And I was like, this is it. I don't, you know, this is it. This is the peace. And I started going because people were nice to me, and that was who God was. And then very quickly, I started attending service and singing and saying the creeds, right? Like, because it was a Lutheran church. Oh, my gosh, please don't throw rocks at me. Um, it was a joke. It was a joke. Nobody hates Lutherans here. Oh, we love them. Uh, the, uh, but, but, like, saying the creeds and, and singing the songs and hearing this, this pastor who's a young guy, like, like, you know, in his 30s uh, or 20s maybe. I don't know. I, when you're little, you have no idea. Um, and, and he was neat, and I liked it, and I liked, the, I liked church. I liked the organ. I liked all of that stuff. Oh, my gosh, what is wrong with him? Um, and that was who God was for a long time for me. And then I started going to catechism, right? And I love catechism. Everybody who went through it is immediately looking at me suspiciously. But I loved it because I got to learn about, like, who this God person was, and I absolutely loved who God was. And I threw myself into reading. And I read, um, I read books about Jesus. I read theology. I read the Bible. I read anything I could get near. And I would go into this class and I would ask questions. And everything about who Jesus was was things I knew in my head and things I learned. And then one night I, I, somebody gave me a tract and I, I prayed that prayer. And then all of a sudden Jesus went from being this puzzle piece to this puzzle piece to this puzzle piece to a new puzzle piece, and that was the guy I'm following forever so I don't go to hell. It's a pretty I was I was young, right? And then somebody explained how the gospel works, and it became Jesus isn't just the one who, you know, this and this and this and this. Jesus is now someone who died for my sins. And over the years, I found new pieces, and I have the worst habit. I'm like a four-year-old kid. I pick up a piece, and that's everything. Anybody else do this? You know, I, I believe that my wife came to me by a gift from God. Like, I, I can tell you the story. It's obvious that God's hand was in all of it, and, and it's where I was supposed to go. And I struggle with that sometimes because sometimes my marriage is the peace. You know what I mean? Sometimes my kids are the peace. In a very real and difficult way, ministry is, like being Pastor Eric is the peace, which is one of the reasons I don't like being called Pastor Eric, which I don't tell people very often. I don't care if you do it. It's not my favorite because I don't want to think this is me. I'm Eric who just happens to be standing up front this week, right? Um, 
because it goes to my head and stuff, and it becomes the only thing, and I get confused, and I get lost. But ultimately, knowing that piece, or knowing that piece, or knowing that piece, or knowing that piece, or knowing that piece, none of that stuff is knowing Jesus. None of that stuff is knowing God intimately. There are parts of it, and once we start putting those pieces together, right, we start finding it. And that can be difficult because in our culture, there are a lot of things that are mixed in with our puzzle. Like the whole church lives in the world of two puzzles in a bag. You all with me? Because it is, we need to win a political war, right? Or we need to stop abortion. Or we need to, you know, I don't know, make sure the Ten Commandments are out in front of this building. Or make sure they're praying in school. Or make sure this or make sure that. And we become all of these things. And all of those things aren't necessarily pieces of that puzzle. Um, Knowing Christ is knowing Christ. And so as we dive into the text today, we're going to be looking at some puzzle pieces. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about snapshots of seeing Jesus in the Old Testament and how... Understanding those little pieces is not the whole picture. Everybody with me? Anybody asleep yet? All right. So uh, we're going to be in Isaiah 45 out of the gate. uh, And eventually we'll go back to Daniel 5. This may be my last Daniel 5 sermon. I really want to do like 10 more. I really like Daniel 5. I'm getting so much out of it. But uh, we'll see. Uh, Probably not. So um, but we're going to go to Isaiah. Isaiah was written about 70 years before. For the exile, right? And about 70 years after the exile started is when Daniel 5 takes place. And what's going on is um, Isaiah is like the prophet to a nation who is in rebellion against God. Like the Jewish people are God's chosen people called out from the nations and like given a special place. You will know me. I will be your God. You will be my people. And, and this is your land. This is where you will always live. This is it. This is the promise God has made to the world through his people. And so Isaiah is the prophet. He is God's voice to these people. And they're screwing up. And not little screwing up, big screwing up. Right? Like they're, wor- they're worshiping false idols and, and pagan gods and stuff like that. And actually when you get into the time of Jeremiah, they're like sacrificing their babies and stuff like that, which is not good. Um, they're making treaties with enemy nations because they believe that armies are more powerful than God is. And they trust, like, they trust neighboring armies more than they trust their God. And so, like, Isaiah's there, and Isaiah is announcing judgment, and he's calling people to repentance, and he's saying, guys, get your heads together. Stop this. God is going to crush you. And finally, finally God announced, you know, through his, through his prophet, um, like the nation repents and they turn and they turn as the um, Assyrian army is on their doorsteps. They've encamped outside of the country or outside of Jerusalem and they are going to sack the capital. You look out over the walls and they go on for miles and they're done. It is over, right? The northern kingdom um, has been conquered and never comes back. They've been taken away as slaves and now the southern kingdom is about to get wiped out. And Isaiah goes to the king who is on his deathbed with an illness. And he says to this king, he's like, look, you need to repent because, like, number one, you're going to die if you don't. And number two, this city is going to get destroyed if you don't. And the king repents. And overnight, a blight, a disease, we don't know exactly which one it was. It is very well documented in both the scriptures and outside of the scriptures, strikes the enemy army, 
and they retreat under the cover of dark. And so the king repents, and the next morning he gets up, and the enemy army is just gone because God used a tiny little germ to fight for his people. Crazy how that works. Like, and it seems insane. Like a, a virus or a germ could paralyze a nation? Like drive them back from victory? How could that happen? So, Isaiah is at a place where the nation is in repentance, and they're coming back to God, and it is short-lived because he stands up and he says, all right, guys, here's the deal. The next round will be the end, and God will not forgive you again. The next time you fall into this, you will not repent, and an enemy army will sack this city and burn it to the ground and destroy the temple, and all of you will be taken away into captivity. He will chase you out of the promised land, and you will not come back, none of you. And in fact, actually, all of the people were, uh, well, there were a few people who were adults at that time did come back, um, but not very many. Uh, For the most part, people died in captivity. Uh, And Isaiah stands before them, and he, like, actually, one of of the most popular uh, quotes from the scriptures, right? I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. We know this one? Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. That, that verse is in conjunction with the announcement that God is going to destroy the nation and kill most of them. And they're going to go away as slaves for a really long time. So when you get a coffee cup at graduation, children, and it says, I know the plans I have for you, it's just letting you know you're getting a job soon. <laughs> Thank you for laughing at that. <laughs> um, so... Isaiah announces, you're all, you're all in trouble. It is going to happen. You're going to go away into slavery. You're going to go away. God is going to punish you. And then in Isaiah 41, he starts talking about how God is going to bring him back because that's the plan he has. You're going to be crushed. You're going to be punished. You're going to be hurt. But I will bring you back. I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to stick with my promise. And in 41, he first mentions a fellow named Cyrus, which is weird. Cyrus is a bit of an oddity in the book of Isaiah. And you've got to think that the people around him were like, Cyrus? Who on earth are you talking about? Who's this Cyrus guy? And then in Isaiah 45, he really digs into Cyrus. And now there's a lot here. We've got to pay attention here. Now watch this. This is what the Lord said to his anointed. Now we're going to pause there. The underline and bold is not original to the text. Right? It was also not written in New International English. Sorry. Uh, but the Hebrew is a little clunky, and I don't speak Hebrew. Um, but his anointed is a really strong phrase. And it's really strong because in Hebrew, it's a different word. Anybody know? Well, in Hebrew, his anointed is Messiah, which in Greek is Christ. What now? This is what the Lord says to his Messiah, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of. There are very few people in the scriptures referenced as I will take the right hand or they will be my right arm or they will be at my right hand in relation to God. And almost all of them are the Messiah, right? Jesus. Well, how does this fit together? Is Eric going to preach us a heretical sermon this morning? No. Buckle up, though. So this Cyrus guy is announced as a Messiah. 
whose right hand God will take hold to subdue nations before him and strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and I will level mountains and break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. Now, when we talk about Messiah in the time of Jesus, this is what the Jewish people are looking for. They're like, God is going to send us an action hero and he is going to kick butt, right? And that was literally what they said. I made that up. Um, But probably they did. They were thinking of the action movies at the time and they were thinking God is going to send like a muscle-bound guy like uh, Judas Maccabee, Judas the Hammer Maccabee, who freed the Jewish people from Persian oppression, right? Like, like big, tough, strong guy, like Moses, who brought them out of slavery, right? And they, they think in terms of this because Moses delivered them, right? And they were all about this Moses guy. Judas the Hammer Maccabee, they celebrate a holiday for him still. It is, anybody know? John knows. Hanukkah, Right? is to remember Judas Maccabee and the, like, breaking the temple away and all that other stuff. The oil and the lamps and the relighting. Anyway, uh, he's going to tell me how wrong I was later. But this is this guy, Cyrus. Isaiah gets up and he says, listen, here's what's going to come. The Cyrus guy, you're going into slavery. You're going to be sent off. But God's Messiah, Cyrus, is going to come and rescue you. And nothing's going to stand in his way. Not even city gates, which, by the way, in context later, is going to have a lot of weight to it. So he has announced this Cyrus guy, and he goes on. I will give you, he's speaking to Cyrus, I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. So as Isaiah goes forward, he starts speaking, he's still speaking for God, and God says, listen, Cyrus, I'm going to reward you, and I am going to give you all kinds of everything so that you know that I am God, so that you know that I am giving this all, of, all of this stuff to you. So that's number one reason that Cyrus is getting all this stuff. What does Cyrus have to do with anything? Patience, right? It's a piece, a tiny, tiny little piece. And it's easy to look at that tiny little piece and forget there's more to it, right? It's an edge piece maybe. Or a piece that goes down here in the clouds, or whatever, or up here in the clouds, sorry. I don't like puzzles. Um, so the first reason he's going to deal with the Cyrus guy is, number one, so that Cyrus will know that God is delivering his people. Number two, which is in verse four, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. So Cyrus is... A pagan. And actually it says this. I'm going to give you a title of honor even though you don't acknowledge me. You know why? Because Cyrus is, number one, a Gentile, very not Jewish guy, right? Jews are really particular about this stuff. So a Messiah who is not Jewish would be really offensive, right? But he's going to give him this title and honor and name him Messiah, and take him by the right hand, even though he doesn't know God, even though he doesn't acknowledge him, he is a heathen, he is a pagan. Um, One of his descendants would actually carry a pig into the Holy of Holies and sacrifice it there. The phrase, the uh, abomination that causes desolation, is a reference to that act. 
um, that was later repeated by a Roman general. Uh, it turns up in Revelation a few times. I didn't just make that up. Uh, actually, the Jewish people did in reference to Cyrus is like great-grandkid or whatever. Anyway, so, but why is he doing all of this? For the sake of Jacob, for the sake of my people. So God promised his people, hey, I'm going to take care of you. You are my people, and even though I cast you out, I can't forget my own child. I couldn't forget my own right hand. I will not forget my people, and I will not forget my promise, even though I've punished you. And so Isaiah is announcing, even though you've fallen out of God's favor, even though in your rebellion you've been separated from God, he will send his Messiah to rescue you. Why? Because I promised you, and I love you, and I will take care of you. This is an example of, I, I love my children every day, some days, I don't like them. You all get what I'm saying? God punished his people, but he loved them. There are days in my walk when I stumble and I wander away. Or when I impulsively take things for myself that aren't mine. Or, or become arrogant. Or become like overly focused on my control and my work and my this and my that instead of on Christ. And in those moments, I may wander off, but God does not abandon me because of the promise he makes in Christ. And so his promise to his people. So number one, like the big thing he's doing here in Isaiah. Number one, so that this guy who doesn't know me will know that I'm the one doing it. Number two, um, so that my people will know like that I'm taking care of and I'm rescuing them. And then five to six here. I am the Lord God, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So there are three reasons he states, and the last one is, I'm God. I'm going to do this stuff so people know I'm God. Well, that hardly seems anything but arrogant, but he's God, and so, like, you know, he's God. He created people to have a relationship with him. And if they know who they, he is, if they know his acclaim, if they know his awesomeness, then they will be in, like, like in the, the beginning steps of being in connection with him. And so he's saying, listen, the whole world will know what I can do. And the whole world will see that I'm bringing my people out of slavery and that I'm going to redeem the lost. And so this is where his prophecy about this guy ends here in this section that I'm preaching at least. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. And so he says, listen, I'm sending Cyrus to save my people my Messiah, my right hand, and he will go so that he knows I sent him. And so my people will be saved, and so the whole world will know that I am God. And then he has this weird little poem where he talks about rain and sunlight. fact of the matter is, without sun, what does not happen in our fields? Like We don't get crops, right? Like generally, though in Montana, this is rarely a problem. You do need sunlight to have plants. I have a couple of potted plants that I've mostly killed and uh, just realized that they were mostly killed because I did not put them anywhere where sunlight could touch them. Um, I assume they were like me and wanted to stay out of the natural light. Uh, and so I had to move them, and they're slowly coming around because light is important. 
Um, so he says, listen, I will give you light. I'll bring light out of the darkness, out of your disaster. I will bring prosperity. Um, I am the Lord God, and my heavens will rain down my righteousness. That's the other thing we really need. What do we need to have plants? Rain, right? Oh, my gosh. I hear rain from farmers 48 times a day, and I can't get a loud rain from you all. Like, what is happening? Um, I send rain to bring life. I send my righteousness, meaning me, meaning Christ, actually, is what it really means, because Christ is the righteousness that we receive. I am not good because I do good things. I'm not good because I love my neighbor. I'm not good because I give money to the poor or show up to church every Sunday. I am only good because Christ's goodness is over me. And any goodness you see is the part that I have not managed to screw up on my own. Everybody with me? And so he closes it out with the bigger message. He says, listen, I'm sending my, my Messiah. I am sending my Savior. I am sending my Son. And he will pour out his blood and it will water the lands and righteousness will be the thing that comes out of it. Like new life will be the thing that comes out of it. This is in the same prophecy, but it is an entirely different piece of the puzzle. Everybody with me? Two pieces gives you part of a picture, maybe an eye or a nose or a piece of corn or something like that, right? This is a big one. It's more of a box top. Anybody ever try to build a puzzle without a box top? Oh, my gosh, it's awful. Anybody who does that is nuts. I think my wife might do it occasionally. Um, but doing it without the box top, you have no frame of reference. This is the box top. So I'm going to jump forward to Daniel 5. So everybody remembers Belshazzar. The last king of Babylon is holding a giant banquet with thousands of people. And he gets drunk in public, which is kind of offensive. And he has women there, which is another thing that they weren't supposed to do. And, like, he says, bring out the, the Jewish God's stuff. We're, let's drink out of his cups. And they bring out the stuff that was in the Holy of Holies. Or not in the Holy of Holies. It was in the temple, the temple articles. And they start drinking wine out of it. And as soon as they start... A hand appears and writes words on the wall, and the king freaks out, and he's like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Actually, the text says that his hips were loosed, which is almost certainly a euphemism for he soiled himself, right? He is so scared, he soils himself. And why would he be so scared he soiled himself? Well, because, number one, a hand appeared and started writing on the wall, Right? And number two, I was not able to completely nail this down. Uh, my dad was actually able to find a reference to it. I heard somebody uh, preaching about it, and so I'm going to share it with you because I think there's some decent history around it. So uh, grain of salt, but kind of interesting. Um, I believe that when Babylonians killed, like ended a battle, they would go out to the dead bodies of the slain enemy soldiers, and they would cut off their hands and pile them up, um, and count them. And that's how you determined how many enemy soldiers you killed. It was also often considered, like the Egyptians considered it, a trophy of their victory. So the God he defeated, right? And we'll drink out of his cups and show how powerful we are over foreign gods. And suddenly a hand appears, a disembodied hand, and it writes on the wall, and you got to think that the king is putting the pieces together as drunk as he is, and he's like, uh-oh, soil myself. What do we do? He starts calling in his guys, his prophets and his magicians and his wise men, and he says, I'll give you all of these rewards if you can just tell me what that says. 
And they couldn't. And eventually Daniel is brought in. And in Daniel 5, he reads it. He says, this is the inscription that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And we talked about this last time. Uh, but I'm going to go over it real quick, sort of this context. Here's what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered your days, the days of your reign, and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. By the way, Paris is very close to the word Persians. And outside of the gates are the Mino-Persian army. He's having the feast, basically, while the enemy is at the gates. And the enemy, during this feast, there are nobody guarding the walls. The enemy, during this feast, they dam the river. And when the water level drops to about two feet, they walk along the riverbed underneath the walls of the city. And it's almost like Isaiah called it when he said, you won't even have to tear down the gates. And he conquers the most unconquerable city in the world, the like wonder of the world, like, like Babylon that had the hanging gardens and everything else, walls so big you could race chariots around it. When you get home, Google um, main gate, or, uh, Babylon Gate German archaeologists. They rebuilt it in a museum in, in Germany, and it, it, is, it defies description. It is so amazing. These guys had money, and they had power, and they had an unbeatable city that was beautiful, and... You have been weighed and handed over to the Medes and the Persians. And they walked in without tearing down the gate. And at Belshazzar's command, David was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck. We talked about the significance of all of this. He was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Uh, And that very night, Belshazzar, king of Babylon, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Now... You might say, Darius, that doesn't sound like Cyrus, right? Now, here's the trick. The Persians and the, and the Medes were both giant, powerful nations. And what happened was the Persians started marching, and they basically ran over the Medes, right? And they took over the country, and they said, man, those Medes are tough. Let's make them a part of our army and give them a name and give their king a spot of honor. That way they'll fight for us. And when Cyrus, who was a military genius, got to the point that he was ready to sack Babylon, problems arose on the frontiers. And he said, Darius, you can do this without me. Go get him." And he marched off and fought different battles. And in reality, the king who took over Babylon, through his representative Darius, was a fellow named Cyrus, 140 years after. So Cyrus was a Messiah. Well, what the heck do we do with that? We look at it and we recognize that is a puzzle piece, right? That is a small piece of a bigger picture because God's people were in captivity as punishment for their sins. And he sent a man who would destroy the enemy and bring them out. And in Christ we see us dead in our sins, enslaved to our flesh, like in our passion, unable to follow God, enemies of God. And when we were still his enemies, Christ came and died for us. 
every Messiah, every anointed one we see in the Old Testament, every example of an individual along the way is an example of who Christ would be. Because it's the story of Jesus. At the end of the day, the story of God's people undeserving, God's people in rebellion, God's people broken under the weight of their own wickedness, being brought out of slavery. It's the story of Jesus buying us out of sin. Well, but he was a pagan. He was, he was you know, a guy who didn't know God. He was a Gentile. He was all of this. And you're right, like Jesus was Jewish, so they don't exactly match. But when Jesus showed up, everybody was looking for something specific. They had looked at this puzzle piece, and they looked at the puzzle piece about Moses, and they looked at this other puzzle piece, and they had mixed the, missed the box top. And so the whole time they're looking for a conqueror, the whole time they're looking for a strong right arm with a sword and a shield and everything else, and what they got was Jesus Christ. And they looked at him and said, you're not our Savior. We don't take people like you. But because they were so focused on the pieces, they missed Christ. They missed Jesus. They were looking at Messiahs, and they missed the Messiah. In John, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, and he says, You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me. As we read the Old Testament, as we read history, as we look at everything that happens, we need to back up and recognize and see clearly that everything is about Jesus. And the moment we wander away from Jesus, the moment we make it about something else, we've lost the plot. The moment we pick up the piece and say, you know what, I should frame this piece. Anybody ever framed a puzzle before? We're going to eventually. we got about eight of them piled up somewhere, and we're going to put frames around them. It's going to happen, probably. My son believed that. Um, But if I take a single piece and hang it on my wall and say, hey, that's Van Gogh. It is? (laughs) Doesn't look like it. Of course it's not. It's a piece. It's a small glimpse of a big picture. And all of the scriptures point forward. And honestly, as we're here today, everything points backward because Christ is the middle of it all. And so as we come in and we worship and we sing and we praise, what are we singing about? We're singing about Jesus. Aren't the songs really the point? Isn't the fact that we don't use an organ really offensive? No, because if it's not, it's got to be about Christ and not about the instrument. It's got to be about Christ and not about the carpet color or the place we meet. Even as we look at like like abortion right now, right? I'm going to tell you, I am happy that that happened. I am not a guy who would ever say, like, like this was a, a modern holocaust. It was offensive. It was an awful thing. It is a political victory at the end of the day, and it is not my Christian faith. It is something I rejoice in, but at the end of the day, I rejoice in Christ, and I rejoice that, like, something horrible has stopped. But my Messiah is not a politician or a Supreme Court justice or anyone else. My Messiah is Christ. And I rejoice when the world moves in the direction of the kingdom, even if it's just doing it in the most broken way possible or the most minimal way possible. Hey, we're not killing babies anymore. We're more like Jesus. Golly, it's a low bar. But we can get lost in it, right? We can believe money or family. I, sometimes my wife has been Jesus in my world, right? Is she Jesus? No. She doesn't fill his shoes very well either. Sometimes my kids stand in God's place. They're not good gods, right? Right? 
Sometimes I put myself in God's place, and I'm about the worst God you could imagine. How do we avoid that? We go back to the box top over and over again. When we find a piece, you look and you say, well, this weird pink one, what's that? Oh, it's a donut. I see. My kids have a puzzle that's just all donuts. Um, It's one of the sweetest puzzles ever. Uh, uh, (laughs) A piece of the puzzle. When I can see it in context of Christ. And so then, like, as I apply it more, I might say, well, my marriage is so important, but I struggle here and I struggle there. Well, your marriage is a way that God refines you so you can look more like Jesus. You can imitate Christ by serving. You can become more Christ-like. Well, you know, this makes me so angry. These people who believe this or do that or this guy who badmouthed me. Well, the wonderful blessing that comes with it is the opportunity to love like Christ. To serve like Christ, even those who hated you. Mm, I don't like that. But at the end of the day, over and over and over again, just pieces of the larger puzzle. It is all about Jesus. Our faith is all about Jesus. And he said to them, how foolish are you and how slow you believe all the prophets have spoken. Do not, or did not the Messiah have to suffer these things, then enter glory? And it, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Um, this is from the road to Emmaus. This is after the resurrection. He's explaining to the apostles, his own people, who don't recognize him and assume he's dead because they looked at the scriptures and they studied it all their lives and they didn't get it because they just saw the pieces. When they finally encountered the whole picture, they were so used to looking at the pieces that they forgot what the picture looked like. And so my encouragement for you, first off, is to stop and look at your heart and ask yourself, have I spent my life focusing on a part of the bigger picture? Am I good at Christian stuff? Am I good at Christian, like, words? Am I good at Christian practices without knowing Jesus himself. Because I can know, I can know every album that um, Johnny Cash ever put out. I've read his several versions of biographies and autobiographies and everything else. I, I know everything there is to know about Johnny Cash. I've seen his really cheesy 70s movie about the life of Jesus. It is fantastic, by the way. Watch it. Um, I never met Johnny Cash. In fact, I think he died, but no, he died before I started listening to his music. Right? Like, I don't know him. I can't know him just by knowing about him. I can't know him even if I can dance to his songs and sing them perfectly and everything else. I can't do that. We know Christ because we know Christ. And my encouragement for you is look at everything that is your faith and ask, is this faith in Christ and relationship with Christ or is it this? Have I traded off puzzle pieces? And I meet people who do this all the time. They'll say, well, Service is important, but I don't serve because I'm busy all the time. I'm just, like, I I worship God to worship God. And service is not my deal. Like, it's not my gift. Nope. We serve because that's what it means to follow Jesus. Well, you know, some people share the gospel. Some people talk about Jesus. Some people have made that a part of their lives. But I really don't feel good about that. I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel, and I'm not guilting you, okay? Because, like, I find it, I get up and preach, man. I'm happy to preach. I'll tell you about Jesus all day long. You sit down put me down with a stranger and it is really hard for me to talk about Jesus. 
like to shoehorn it into the conversation. You know, there are some people who can do that and they're like magic. I struggle with that. It's hard, right? But it's a part of, like talking about Jesus is a part of being a follower. Spending time with other believers. Actually going to church. Like, oh, well, I got all my faith in my books and my this and that. Like, we're supposed to be together as believers and support each other, encourage each other. We're supposed to train each other towards righteousness and sharpen each other like iron and iron. Like, this is a part of the deal. But sometimes we say, well, that puzzle piece, I don't like it. Amen. <laughs> like, anybody thrown away any puzzle pieces recently? For me, stopping and being quiet is about the hardest thing in the world to do. I just want to move. Right? And my quiet time, 90% of the time, is going for walks because I can't sit still and be quiet and listen to Jesus. Can't do it. I can. I just got to learn. Shouldn't have said can't. I'm in trouble now. You get hit by a bus or something and have to lay in bed and do nothing for six months. Don't run me over in the parking lot. My challenge, my question, my encouragement is, which puzzle pieces are missing? Which one have you hidden in your pocket so you don't have to look at them? Which ones have you over-focused on? Is it politics? Is it you know, your neighbor? Is it the people you're angry at? Is it just fellowship? All of the church's fellowship? Is all of the church being good and behaving? What is it? And then put it back in the box and look at the cover and get to know Christ intimately. And in doing so, you'll become more like him. And then some dorky kid in Montgomery, Alabama, might, who, not in, not in Montgomery, some dorky kid will come up to you and spend time with you and say, I don't know who that guy is, but I want to know. Because I like what they are. And eventually you'll figure out, like, that's Jesus. I just didn't realize it. Right? The whole picture of Christ is the whole picture of who you're becoming. Let's close in prayer and I'll let you go. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with the folks who are here today. Um, if, if, if they've got pieces of the puzzle in their pockets and they're trying to ignore them, Lord God, I pray that you would pull them out. If they've never looked at the whole box top, if they've never bothered to, to learn the edges in the, in the understanding of the Scriptures and, and who God is, if they, if they spend a lot of time angry and frustrated and tipping the puzzle over because they can't quite deal with the life they're living in or if they're overwhelmed and stressed out and numb and can barely look at the puzzle and are just barely showing up on a regular basis and and lord god i pray that you would take these things and and heal them i pray that you would heal them through your word through through worship through you speaking into their hearts in the quiet moments through through the preaching of the word through fellowship with other believers through through mentors who disciple them and and through opportunities to serve and disciple others i pray that you would move in us and make us new people i pray that the great puzzle pieces the the plan you've laid out not to harm us the path you've set before us and the plans you have for us that we would look at them and realize this is all a big part of your plan for me the salvation plan that christ paid off at the cross and that'll be fulfilled at the end of times in christ's name i pray amen